0: And currently we're working our way verse by verse through the first book of the Bible, Genesis. Genesis chapter 6. Actually, Genesis chapter 7 is where we're going to be in today. That's our primary text. Wrapping up Genesis chapter 6, that was last week. Some of the highlights from last week, you'll remember that we talked about kinds. What, What constituted a kind on Noah's Ark? And we discovered that kind does not equate to species, that species is a rather modern development. And it was something that's really formed or shaped the way people think. And so a lot of people think, oh, species. Could Noah fit all those species on the ark? But if you're talking kinds, then yeah, you you could fit the kinds on the ark. We also talked about microevolution versus macroevolution. We talked about adaptation and variation within a kind and how uh, evolution subscribes to macroevolution as well as microevolution, but the creation is subscribed to microevolution. Again, all discussions from last week. We don't need to go over those all again. Moving into Genesis chapter 7 then, verses 1 through 16. Maybe a little ambitious today. <laughs> 1 through 16. And, you know, let's see how it goes. Let's see where we, where we get with that. Before we read through these, maybe I should give a little bit of a format or a little bit of an outline to help us as we're about to move in to this chapter. One of the things that you're going to see about this chapter is that in verse 6, it talks about the flood, and then in verses 7 through 9, it talks about entering the ark, and then in verse 10 through 12, it talks about the flood again, and then in verses 13 through 16, entering the ark. So it kind of jumps back and forth. So some of this information that we're going to be looking at in these first 16 verses is going to be stuff that, A, we've either seen before, last week or the week before, or B, some of the stuff that's going to be repeat just from today. So the material we're going to be looking at today, what you see in verse 6 is kind of a repeated, repeated in verses 10 through 12. What you see in verses 7 through 9 is kind of repeated in verses 13 through 16. All right. So just realize there is that kind of jumping back and forth kind of stuff. So getting into Genesis chapter 7 then, somebody my reading, how about reading verse 1.
1: The Lord then said to Noah, go into the ark, you and your whole family, because I have found you righteous in this generation.
0: Excellent, thank you, Dave. We find here in verse 1, the Lord said to Noah. The word there for Lord is the All right, Yahweh. But you're going to find as we go through this, or as we move through this study, that... It's going to switch back and forth between Yahweh and Elohim Alright, so it switches back and forth, it jumps back and forth between Yahweh and Elohim as the story goes on Some of the theologians that study this material suggest that maybe this is an indication that the material comes from two different sources Okay, and so you'll hear, especially in source criticism discussions They'll say, oh this is from, we're going to call this author J and then this one over here, we're going to call this author P. And the material from author P, everywhere he refers to God, he uses the Elohim. And then uh, this author J, whoever that might be, everywhere he refers to God, he uses Yahweh. All right. So there are people that debate, oh no, that's that's ridiculous. You know, It's just one author, and it goes back and forth. And another one says, oh no, it's two authors, it's clear, and here are my different proof texts to show it. I really don't care. I, I see this as the inspired word of God. And whether God inspired one person or two to write this material... I don't really care. Who wrote it? I believe Moses wrote it. Did he pull in material from two different sources when writing this material? Maybe. Or maybe God gave it just to him and he wrote it down just by himself. But personally, I look at it as God's word. I feel like I can trust it. I don't feel like I have any issues, whether it's one person or two behind the scenes. Does God anoint more than one person to write his word? Yes. Absolutely. We hold in our hands 66 books. How many authors? Probably about 40. All right? 40 different people God inspires to write his words for him to convey to us, to give to us his message, his word. So whether it's one or two here, Uh, I really don't care. (laughs) It doesn't make a big difference to me. So the Lord said to Noah, Come into the ark, you and all your household, because I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. How about verse 2? You shall take with you seven each of every clean animal, a male and his female, two each of animals that are unclean, a male and his female. Excellent. Thank you, Mike. Do you ever consider, maybe as we're reading this verse 2 here, when God comes to Noah and gives him this initial set of instructions here, what was Noah's job before this? I'm thinking he probably wasn't a zookeeper. He probably wasn't a shipbuilder, and he probably didn't have to do, he probably wasn't a zookeeper. But now he's going to be dealing with animals and building a, a huge ship. Another thing to think of, when we're looking at verse 1 again, where God says, because I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation, Let me read somebody else's words on this part. Stuart Briscoe ends up saying in the commentary that I was reading on Genesis, Noah was described by God as righteous before me in this generation. This was a delight to God, but in all probability an irritant to Noah's society. It is impossible to please God without sometimes displeasing those who are opposing him. Paul said, we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one we are, the aroma of death leading to death, and to the other, the aroma of life leading to life. That's from Second Corinthians chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. All of us would much prefer being a fragrance of Christ rather than an aroma of death. But unfortunately, we are not free to choose which we will be because this is determined by the reaction of others to what we say and do. By building his ark, Noah offered salvation to those who would respond in faith. To those who entered with him, it was a blessing and a delight. But to those who refused, it must have been the most awful statement of loss and dismay as the ark disappeared into the mist. Like Noah, who was probably an irritant to his society, when God says, I see that you are righteous before me in this generation, that's not going to be very popular. I mean, by definition, he stands out. He stands out to God, and I'm sure he stands out to the people of his generation. We should stand out. If we have a true relationship with God, we should stand out. And it may be that we stand out as an irritant to a people that don't want to be saved and don't want to have anything to do with our God. Does that mean we go with flow? Does that mean we water it down, you know, try to blend in and try to be friends with everybody? No, we're to be faithful to God. And some people will embrace that. As wow, there's something different about you. I like that, I'm attracted to it. I want to see what's different. Will you please tell me why you're why you're different from the others? And to others, that guy's weird. That woman, there's something there's an issue with her. She's all into this God thing. They choose how they respond. And we just face the repercussions of how they feel about us. And to some, a delight, but probably a small group. And to others, eh, something weird with that person there. Verse 2, you shall take with you seven each of every clean animal, a male and female, two each of animals that are unclean, a male and a female. I was going to say, we'll talk later about clean and unclean animals when we get to Leviticus, but I don't think we're going to be getting to Leviticus anytime soon. (laughs) It's probably going to be a while. All right, so we'll talk about it a little bit here. We mentioned last week that in Leviticus, it talks about clean and unclean, and that's something that's well future from this perspective, from, from this story. So Noah... Well in the future is Leviticus and Moses, okay? So at this time, for some reason, there's a distinction between clean and unclean that we don't actually get to see described more until much in the future of Noah's day. So it's kind of interesting. Well before the law, you have clean and unclean, all right? The reasons for it, well in Leviticus, you find out it has to do with the dietary issues and it has to do with sacrificial element, all right? As Mike pointed out last week, they're not eating meat yet. All right, that's gonna come after the flood. So this time it's probably not a dietary thing because you don't need a distinction between clean and unclean foods when you're not eating those foods. How would they find this information out? Well, we don't know. It doesn't tell us. We do know from the time of Cain and Abel there were sacrifices being made. That's pretty early in the account. All right? Cain and Abel, I mean, you're talking right after Adam and Eve. all right? You're talking about the sacrifices also that were made for Adam and Eve. Remember, they were covered with the skins of animals. First death, the first animals that had to die sacrificed on their behalf and the skins given to them so we do have sacrifices going on and perhaps that had something to do it and you remember when we looked at the godly line of Seth when it talked about how Enoch walked with God I'm sure that had something to do with discussions going back and forth perhaps in the discussions or in walking with God Enoch was able to find out from God oh clean and unclean of this and spread it out and give it to the rest of the family and have them pass it on By the way, clean and unclean being differentiated before the law, that's not the only concept from the law that we often associate with the law that ends up showing up earlier than that time with Moses on the mountain. We have the Sabbath in Exodus. They talk about the Sabbath before there's even the discussion on the mountain. So there's another element of the law, if you will, that ends up showing up before the law. Kind of interesting. More studies there that we could end up doing. All right, moving on from there. One of the interesting things, too, is even though we have clean and unclean animals, we find that God is making a provision for the unclean animals to be spared. Seems like if (laughs) if you didn't need them, you could just, you know, no, I'll just send you the clean ones. (laughs) And you can make the the boat a little smaller. But no, God's plan is that the animals, even the unclean ones, are going to be spared. (laughs) Dave, I I have a feeling I know what Dave's thinking right now. (laughs) (laughs) Why, Dave? Because <laughs> Dave likes to oh, eat some of the unclean I thought you were going to say the shoes. Uh, there, wouldn't, there wouldn't be bacon? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. There would be no bacon. Lobster. It's so that God can show a distinction between what's acceptable and what's unacceptable. Oh, that's probably why. No, is <laughs> why. Absolutely. So, <laughs> so seal up that barbecue sauce, put it back in the cupboard. <laughs> This idea of God providing for the salvation of unclean as well as clean One of the commentators said something interesting He said this is a good passage to recognize that unclean does not mean sinful If you're covered in the blood of Christ, if you're forgiven by Christ If you've submitted yourself to Christ, you've got his righteousness on your behalf Imputed righteousness, you're there You've made it because of that If you've rejected Christ, if you've rejected that provision You don't have that covering, you're a sinner, you're going to hell because you've rejected that so we can be unclean and still covered or still saved and then he provides for us the cleansing that we need so just something i'm like i said i'm throwing that out there i ran across it found it interesting thought i'd present it to you today do your further studies on that okay genesis chapter 7 verse 3 also seven each of birds of the air male and female Actually, I want somebody else to read this verse, because of the next phrase I'm about to run across. Somebody else read chapter 7, verse 3. And seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. All right, so Ron's version says offspring. What do the other versions say? And I think Ron's version, I think you have ESV? Yes. Yes. ESV has offspring. Various kinds. Various kinds. Species. Oh, okay. Various kinds. Species. Let's see. So that means Steve has New King James? Yep. Mike, do you have NIV? Yep. Okay. Any others?
1: (laughs) Right up the top of your head. Well, it's only because I've been studying it this week. (laughs)
0: Next week, I'll totally forget all this. (laughs) All right. So we have various kinds. We have species. We have offspring. Why am I bringing this up right now? Here's why. Because my version says species as well That's the one I typically use when my New King James And I went, wait a minute Didn't we just decide last week that species is not what it's talking about? Yeah, we did We found out species is not what it's talking about So what's going on here? The word that's actually used is Zarek now go way back to Genesis chapter one and Genesis chapter three. This word shows up over there as well. Let's go look at some of those verses. Chapter one verse eleven. Somebody get one uh, eleven. Somebody get one twelve. And somebody, actually, Mike, do you mind doing one eleven? Okay. And then Steve, do you mind doing one twelve? Okay. And Esther, do you mind doing one twenty nine? Okay. Ron, do you mind getting chapter three verse fifteen? And Chris, do you mind getting chapter four verse twenty five? Sure. These are all verses that this word Zara is going to show up. Chapter one verse eleven, Mike.
1: Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants, and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it according to their various kinds.
0: Excellent. So here we have seed, and we have, it's discussing plant life.
1: Steve. And the earth brought forth grass, the herb that yields seed according to its kind, and the tree that yields fruit, fruit, whose seed is in itself according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. Excellent. Thank you. So there, again, seed, and it's Mm -hmm. referring to plant life. Esther, what have you got?
0: God further said, Behold, I have given you every seed-bearing plant over all the earth, and every fruit tree, the fruit of which grows seed, it will be your food. So, so far, it's looking like this word in each of these passages that we've looked at so far. It has to do with plants. But, what does Ron say? Genesis 3.15? Correct. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring, and of her offspring... He shall bruise your, your head, and you shall bruise his heel. You hear any connection to plants in that verse? Mm-hmm. I'm not hearing any plants in that verse. <laughs> what is Zera in that verse? Offspring. It's offspring, people. not of a plant sort, but of a people sort, right? Mm-hmm. All right. Then, Chris,
1: what have you got? Then Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and named him Seth, for God has appointed another seed for me instead of Abel whom Cain killed.
0: All right, so which one is that? Is it plants or is that people? Human. It's human, right? It's human. This word is typically used of human offspring, but in Genesis chapter 1, the creation account, it shows up also as plant offspring, okay? So the word is translated in some of your versions as offspring, as we've seen in the ESV. New King James ended up going with species, all right? NIV indicated various kinds. So what I'm what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to bring to your attention just because it says species, don't read into it the English meaning of the word species or it's going to create some confusion. All right? Recognize that the word has to do with offspring of a plant sort or of a human sort, and usually of a human sort. Or the next generation of the kind. Yes, exactly right. The next generation of the kind. That's an excellent way to put it. Good job, Ron. All right, moving on from there. Genesis chapter 7, going back to chapter 7. Verse four. Somebody mind reading that? Seven days from now, I will send rain on the earth for forty days and forty nights, and I will wipe from the face of the earth every living creature I have made. Excellent. Thank you. The word for rain right here, Atar, Okay. This is not a torrential downpour. This is just regular rain. What would make this situation unique is if you get a regular rain for forty days. <laughs> there's going to be some flooding. All right. So we have regular rain happening over 40 days. In verse 12, however, go look at verse 12, you'll see it also mentions rain over there. Somebody mind reading that verse?
1: And the rain was on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. Excellent. In
0: verse 12, that word is Gesem. Alright? And there, that's a torrential downpour. So we actually have two words being used to describe the waters that come upon the earth. We have regular rain, as well as torrential flooding rain. All right. So I'm just pointing out that there's a difference between this word and the word that shows up in verse 12 there. But this one here is the regular rain. Some of the other things as well. This word uh, that's used here in this verse, right here, can also talk about God's judgment. In fact, we find in chapter 19, verse 24, where God rains down fire upon Sodom and Gomorrah. This is also the word that's used to describe what happened uh, when it was raining hail in the time of... Moses and the Exodus and, and Pharaoh, and then you also find in Exodus 16.4 that manna, this word is used to describe the manna that rains down from heaven. So the word, same word can be used to describe regular rain, or can also be used to describe some form of God's judgment, or it can be used to describe some form of God's blessing. One of the other things that shows up in this verse as well is this idea of seven and the idea of 40. Okay, and specifically looking at the number 40, you're going to find as you read through your Bible, if you haven't noticed it yet already, the number 40 is going to come up a lot. All right? Mm -hmm. Using just Moses and the patriarchs' accounts, you're going to find 40 showing up. That's the uh, age of Isaac when he gets married. It's going to be the age of Esau when he gets married. It's going to be the amount of time that Moses ends up spending on the mountain. Twice. (laughs) (laughs) All right? Uh, You're going to find that it's also... Moses' life being divided into three periods of 40 years each, according to Stephen when he's recounting uh, the life of Moses. You find that 40 years is the time that the Israelites wander in the wilderness. And why was that? Because they spent 40 days spying out the land and failed when they brought back their report. And then you're also going to find that 40 shows up even in some of the numbers of articles that are mentioned in the design of the tabernacle. The number 40 is you got 40 of these and you got 40 of those. So it's kind of interesting. Forty shows up a lot. By the way, my kids are involved in Junior Bible Quiz, and a lot of times some of those questions will come, and it'll be how many, and then you know fill in the blank. And sometimes the kids will buzz in before they even hear the rest of the question because they just fear. Uh, I'm going to guess. It's 40. 40. In front of 40, there's <laughs> several of these that end with 40, so buzz in and say, 40. Yeah. Good. Good. Right. Good. <laughs>
1: Jesus fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, before he was tempted by the
0: enemy. Yeah, when you start talking about expanding it beyond the time of Moses and the yeah. patriarchs, yeah, 40 is going to show up even more. Exactly. Jesus was yeah. tempted 40 days and 40 nights. Yeah. All right. By the way, at the end of this verse, in the end of verse 4, God makes a reference to the thing he's about to destroy is the thing that he made. It's another correlation or another connection between the flood account and the creation account. The flood account and the creation account. Two big deals, all right? When, you, when you're talking about reading through God's word and the great things that God has done, when you talk about creation you talk about the flood, those just say, there's a God. Yeah. So what do you do if you don't want God? <laughs> what do you do if you want to do away with God? You have to do away with the reality of creation. You have to do away with the reality of the flood. Those two things exactly that Peter warned that scoffers in the last day would do. All right? Chapter 7, verse 5. And Noah did according to all that the Lord commanded him. Somebody mind reading chapter 6, verse 22. And Noah did so. He carried out God's orders. Yep. So it's pretty much the same message that we're getting in chapter 6, verse 22. The last verse that ends that chapter is actually pretty much the same thing that we're reading here. Chapter 7, verse 5. And one of the neat things about this is it doesn't give us any details other than Noah obeyed. I mean, when it comes down to it, at the end of your life... It almost doesn't matter what you do so much with the details of your life, it's whether or not you obeyed. So the legacy that you're gonna pass on, hopefully is that he obeyed. She obeyed. And that's a legacy that Noah gets to pass on to us as an example. No, how did you do that door thing? How did you make the deck supported for you know what? Those are all details that are trivial and are gonna pass in time. What it comes down to is he obeyed. And it should be for our lives as well that we should obey. Chapter 7, verse 6, Noah was 600 years old when the floodwaters were on the earth. How does a 600-year-old man swing a hammer? (laughs) (laughs) Right? We've obviously got a completely different reckoning of time. We don't live 600 years, right? So when we see somebody that's 80 years old, we're thinking, wow, that guy's got to be getting up in age. When they're 90, we're like, no, you should not be building stuff. (laughs) All right? (laughs) We're getting used to a lifespan that's a lot shorter Mm -hmm. than they enjoyed back then. So we read this and we go, 600 years old? Oh, there's no way. But when you think about it, he's only two-thirds of his life. He's only two-thirds of his life old. He lives to be 950 years old. So when you think about it in the grand scheme of things, that gives you a lot of time to be swinging a hammer, or, you know, using a saw, whatever the case might be. You're probably, if you're able to physically live 950 years, you're probably able to physically do other things as well. So it's not like you have to knock off doing work at the age of 70 or 65 or 50 or 55 or whatever the retirement age is for us, all right? When we say, oh, you know what, they've they've served a good long time in their career and now they get to just relax and take it easy. That wasn't them, okay? (laughs) They did not start relaxing and taking it easy at 55 or 60 or 65. At 600 years, he's just now finishing his greatest work, all right? So a couple things, too, when we're going to talk about how long... Was he building the ark? And Chris mentioned one number so far, and we want to look at a few of these. Right here, we actually have a little point, a little reference in time. We see that he's 600 years old when the floodwaters were on earth. So at 600, flood. Because by then, it's done, right? I mean, by the time the water's coming, you better hope to be done. You can't say, (laughs) I'm not done with the roof yet. (laughs) So by the time he's 600, it's done. A couple other references. Read chapter 5, verse 32. Somebody mind reading that? After Noah was 500, Ham, and Japheth were born. All right, so in, at 500 years old, we have a reference to his three sons. We don't know exactly when he started the ark, though. He could have started when he was 500, or he could have started after. He might have even been able to start a little before. It depends a lot on when God shows up and says, get going. Here's the job I want you to do. Get busy. Read verse uh, chapter six, verse three. Somebody mind reading that one? And the Lord said, "My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh. Yet his days shall be one hundred and twenty-five years." You says one hundred and twenty-five? I'm sorry, twenty. One hundred and twenty. Okay, apologize. Not a problem. So one hundred and twenty mm-hmm. years is mentioned there in chapter six, verse three. Why do I bring that up? Some people would suggest that the uh, the best interpretation for that passage is that eventually people are only going to live to be one hundred and twenty years old. Okay, And others would say, no, I think the interpretation for that passage is that's how long God was saying before the flood's coming. As if to say, in 120 years, that's it. I'm only giving man 120 years. I don't know. I don't know which of those two ways it goes. But I'm, I'm throwing that out there for your consideration. And then chapter 6, verse 18. Somebody might reading that.
1: But I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your
0: wife and your sons' wives with you. Excellent. Thank you, Dave. So the reason I bring that up to you is because when God is saying, this is what I want you to do, this is what's going to happen, the plans include the salvation not just of him and his wife, but his three sons and their three wives. Okay. So the consideration is, when did they begin? Well, it seems like the sons were already born. It seems like the sons maybe were already even married. But there is a possibility that his sons weren't born yet and that God is already saying in advance you're going to have some sons you know they're going to get married and it's going to be it's going to be a while I'm going to give you a while and then once they you have your sons and they get married and then you know well after that you're going to have how long is it that he had to build the ark it, it's not known for sure A 100 years is traditionally thought to be what it is the second most popular vote is for 120 years using that one verse from chapter 6 verse 3 but it's not known for sure it was a long time and that makes sense because it was a big project, <laughs> right. And you need a long time to complete a big project. Chapter 7, so Noah with his sons, his wife, and his sons' wives went into the ark because of the waters of the flood. So like I said with that earlier structure, chapter, uh, verse 6 has to do with flood. Verses 7 through 9 is entering the ark. Chapter 7, verse 8, of clean animals, of animals that are unclean, of birds and everything that creeps on the earth. No new material there. Again, we're doing that back and forth thing. We're bouncing back and forth. Verse 9, two by two they went into the ark to Noah, male and female, as God had commanded. Verse 10, and it came to pass after seven days that the waters of the flood were on the earth. Hmm, this is weird, a reference to seven days. You're going to find as we look at these chapters, specifically here, 7, 8, and 9, that you're going to have a mention of seven days, and then you're going to have a mention of 40 days, 40 days of rain, and then you're going to have a mention of 150 days, The floodwaters prevailed on the earth. Then you're going to have a mention of 40 days after the ark came to rest. And then you're going to have another mention at the end of seven days. you look at this, it kind of creates a little pattern, which is common in ancient writings, where you would have this repetition of sorts of of numbers where something goes, it's a chiastic way of describing. If you add all these up, though, you would be in error to think the whole account takes only this long. We're going to find out that the whole account actually takes a little over a year. If you add this up, you've got three months, four and a half months, five months. So really, these numbers only add up to five months. It's not meant to encompass the whole thing. I'm just pointing out the pattern, the 740, 150, 47, okay? Why seven days? There's a Jewish tradition that perhaps the seven days was seven days of mourning. Seven days of mourning. You remember that when we looked at the godly line of Seth, that Methuselah, the guy who lives the longest, 969 years, he dies the year the flood comes. That maybe he died, the tradition is, maybe he died within seven days of the waters coming upon the earth. And there's a mourning period, and then the flood. That's a possibility. There's also a suggestion that maybe it is days of mourning, Maybe it's God mourning at the loss of everybody, except for this group of eight. Those are just oral traditions and possibilities, but I throw those out there. Chapter seven, verse eleven. In the six hundredth year of Noah's life, in the second month, the seventeenth day of the month. The second month, the seventeenth day of the month. It almost sounds like the author is taking pains to describe exactly when it happened, as if it really did. It really did. Yeah. You know, in stories, you don't need a reference to dates, because if it's just a story, if it's just fiction, you don't need a date to tie to it. The author here wants us to clearly come away with the impression that this was a true event, that this actually happened, and he tells us right when it did. 600th year of Noah's life, second month, 17th day of the month. By the way, that second month, that assumes that there's been a new year recently, but when was the new year? The reason I bring that up is because... we'll turn to Exodus chapter 12, verse 2. Somebody mind reading that?
1: This month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you.
0: Excellent. For the Jews, you had two New Years. You had two calendars. You had a calendar that had an autumn New Year, and then by the time of the Passover, that was such a significant event, that God said, I want you to recognize now that this month that the Passover starts in, this is when the New Year is. All right? So, which is it in Genesis? Well, clearly, Genesis is before the Passover. So, surely we should go with the Autumn New Year as being the right one. Well, not so fast. Who writes Genesis? Moses. What significant event was Moses present in? The Passover. (laughs) All right. So, Moses, more than anyone, would know that there's a change in the calendars. So, which New Year was it? We don't know. But there was a passage of the year, and this is now the second month, whether it was the spring New Year or the fall New Year. Okay. Turning back then to Genesis chapter 7, chapter 7, verse 11. Interesting thing, too, that we see in this verse. You have two causes for the flood. You have two kinds of occupants in the ark. The two causes for the flood are waters below and above. The two kinds of occupants in the ark, human and animal, and the two names for deity, Elohim and Yahweh. And then this verse also has this neat passage. On that day, all the fountains of the great deep were broken up and the windows of heaven were opened. So where did all the water come from? A lot of skeptics would say, and and, and if you're not a skeptic, a student as well would ask, where did the waters come from? Right, because if you're going to flood the earth, where did it all come from? There's two main theories, all right? Turn back to Genesis chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. Somebody mind reading verses 6 and 7?
1: Then God said, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. Thus God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament, and it was so. Excellent.
0: So here we're going to talk a little bit about what's called the canopy theory. Okay? This was a popular theory. It's now fading in popularity right now. The canopy theory is... Well, if you remember back in the creation account, you had a separation of waters. You had a waters below the firmament and a waters above the firmament. The firmament being an expanse or a space or sky, some would say. Okay? So some would say there was a canopy, using these verses and using the flood story, that there was a canopy of water over the earth. Above where the birds fly, but before you get to the moon. Okay? <laughs> so that there's there's this atmosphere, if you will, that's dense with water. Okay? And that when the waters from above come down, they're coming from up there. And the suggestion is that that's so dense and so thick that it was a completely different earth back then. That it was much more lush. okay, And that people could have these lifespans of 950 years in the time of Noah. 969 from Methuselah. That you could live this long, that this canopy contributed to that in some of it that theory is one of the two primary theories it still holds on very much as a as a popular theory the only problem is and the only reason that it's starting to fade a little bit is that now that we have computers they're trying to do computer models as to what this would all look like and how it would all fit and if if, if it can reconcile with the bible and it turns out they're coming up with some problems and they're like i don't know how we're going to make this reconcile this i'm not sure that this is going to work anymore so those that would propose the canopy theory isn't going to work, they have a different theory. And the other theory is that the, if you read these words here, the great deep were broken up. They would put the emphasis on that phrase. And (laughs) their saying is that there was all this water in what we would call the oceans, and that the water being cold and dense is heavy and is pushing down, yet the molten lava, the magma underneath the Earth's crust, is light and wants out and wants to go up. So the water wants to go down, the magma wants to go up, the Earth splits in the middle of the ocean, and there's this hot versus cold, right? Yeah. <laughs> and hot meets cold, the cold water ends up vaporizing, going in. In fact, let me read this article. I can do it better by reading somebody else's words than I'm trying to paraphrase it myself. In the depths of the world's oceans, cat- catastrophe struck. The earth had been a time bomb waiting to go off. Cold, dense material at the seafloor was floating on top of a hot, lighter material deeper in the mantle. The seafloor suddenly broke open in the middle, While the edges began diving into the mantle below, the crack in the seafloor spread around the globe. As hot magma rose into these cracks, seawater flashed instantly into steam. Supersonic jets of steam roared into the upper atmosphere, carrying seawater with them. Clouds of this ejected material spread out across the planet, cooled and fell in torrents on land and sea. As cold ocean crust was replaced with hot, expanded magma, the seafloor rose. And with it, the sea level rose worldwide. Step by step, the the rising waters wiped out the environments that God had carefully created. Meanwhile, ocean currents laden with sand and mud circled the earth, dumping layer after layer of dead animals and plants across the moving continents. The earth became a a tomb, a time capsule that preserved a record of the world judged by God. Eventually, the process ran out of steam. Once all the cold material from the seafloor sank into the mantle, everything ground to a halt, the fountains of the deep were shut off, and the torrential rain ceased, As the new hot seafloor cooled and shrank, the sea level once again dropped. The waters drained off the continents, carrying piles of sediment with them back into the ocean. So, two primary theories the canopy theory and then this erupting seafloor theory. Which one is it going to be? I don't know. I'm waiting to get to heaven and go, God, can I watch the film? (laughs) You know, can you show me? I really don't care. It doesn't matter a whole lot to me. You know, the fact that it did happen and that God was in charge, that's what I understand it to be. You know, when God's in charge, things happen. And things happen according to his parameters. He's not—it's not, not going to get out of his control. He's not going to go, oops, that slipped, you know, and, and all
1: of a sudden he's got to redo something like that. Yes, Steve. The can't be third when you say that they don't like it because of the computer models, right? Well, they're already shown that the computer models didn't work too well with climate change, and then man's theories and how things work. Bumblebees aren't supposed to fly.
0: Exactly right. You know what's funny is I read it. I read a response that somebody wrote in criticizing the computer models just like you're Mm -hmm. phrasing it and they use the bumblebee as their example (laughs) as to why we can't trust what science would tell us what is and what isn't possible that's awesome that you said that plus it says they both happened it does doesn't it it it, says the heavens and the under it says that both occurred and that's exactly what I want to say we should trust what God's word says and when it says that the great deep was broken up I believe the great deep was broken up and when it says the windows of heaven were open I believe whatever the windows of heaven were
1: they were open and it sounds like water came from both directions. Mm-hmm. I think you're exactly right. Pastor Chuck, years ago, I remember listening to him on this, and one of the things he also said was, people living so long, what is one thing that destroys things here? Sunshine. I mean, sunlight. I found a frisbee at my mom's backyard mm-hmm. out in Vegas. I threw it, hit a tree, and it just shattered. <laughs> it's been sitting out in the sun. Sun destroys stuff. And Pastor Chuck's thing was that part of the reason people live so long and things were the way they were it was filtered through that right. layer of possible water that was up there. I mean, yeah. was it there? I don't know, but you know, it makes sense. It yeah. does. Yeah, I like it.
0: Plus, I think there a few years ago they actually found like lots water in outer space. I mean, there there is water, and and it was kind of like a unique discovery at the time.
1: Well, clouds hold water. Well, yeah, but I'm right? I'm talking about <laughs> yeah above. even
0: beyond the clouds. Yeah. And I, then, I read an article that mentioned mm-hmm. that too, and it got so technical. I had to just kind of back yeah. up a little bit because I'm like, "What? Wow, that's like the a The word, word, like the word for water in Hebrew, is "mayim," and for heaven is "mayim." Oh, okay, neat. Oh, that's interesting. I like that. All right, let's see. Should we try another verse? All right, let's let's just finish this verse. Talking here about the fountains of the great deep breaking up. That phrase, or that that English phrase, "broken up," comes from a Hebrew word "bequah," I guess. And that word appears 51 times in the Old Testament. It's also, interestingly, used, it's the same word used in the dividing of the Red Sea, parting of the Red Sea, breaking it up, separating it. It's also used of the, the rock in the wilderness that water springs from, the breaking of the rock. And it's also used of the earth in Korah's Rebellion, if you know that story, in the wandering in the wilderness, and there's a whole bunch of people, hey, who thinks you're, you know, you're the one chosen by God. The earth opens up and swallows him and all of his, you know, <laughs> followers. Yeah. Korah's Rebellion, the earth splitting open and swallowing them. <laughs> and then moving on from there, verse 12, And the rain was on the earth forty days and forty nights. Verse 13, On the very same day Noah and Noah's son Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. All right. Kind of fun. We'll end with this. Noah's wife. She doesn't ever get named in the account. No. Mm-hmm. We don't ever find out who she is or what her name is. She kind of just goes unnamed. You know, what's interesting, though, and you've heard me say this before, that there are flood accounts in different places in the world, over 500 flood accounts. One of the neat things I ran across is that the oral tradition in China, they have this as their oral tradition for their flood account. Now, do you guys remember what Noah's father's name was? Lamech. All right? So we're going to start with that bit of history. And it says here, the patriarch Lamech, Begat the man, Noah. Sounds kind of like Lamech and Noah, almost a little bit, maybe? I don't know. Oral Uh, tradition being what it is. All right, sounds pretty close. His wife was the matriarch, Ga Boluwen. So perhaps her name was Ga Boluwen or something close (laughs) to it. And then it says, and their sons were Lo Han, Lo Shen, and Lo Jehu. So perhaps we have a glimpse from the oral tradition in China as to a possible name for Noah's wife. We don't have it from the Bible. And so, you know, take it with a grain of salt. It's a little fun. Well, what were the sons' names again? Lohan, Loshan, and Jahu. Ham, Shen, and Kind amazing. of close, right? It is kind dumb. of close. So, interesting. Yeah, so they're just they're something out. there, a little fun, something a little fun there to contemplate. Yeah, very good, job. You know, with oral traditions being what they are, you know, <laughs> some of the information yeah. has its source and truth. Exactly. Wow. All right. Let's go ahead and close them. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for the mighty works that you're able to do. We thank you, Lord, for the warning that you were able to provide. We thank you, Lord, for the salvation that you extended. We thank you, Lord, that it looks like that's kind of a model. What we saw in the times of Noah sort of a repeat in these times, that you provide for us a salvation. Lord, that you provide for us warnings. And Lord, help us to learn from the example of Noah that we need to just obey. We need to be obedient servants of you, whether it be swinging a hammer or hurting animals or doing something else that might be outside of our comfort zone or outside of our vocation. Help us to be followers of you wherever that might take us. Thank you in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. amen.
1: amen. All
0: right, you guys have a great week.